Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Acts chapter 20, if you have a Bible, open up with me. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, we find ourselves in the 20th chapter looking at the first 16 verses with a message entitled, A Missional Man in a Hurry. A Missional Man in a Hurry. Stand with me once you're there. We'll read our text together. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, the son of Paris, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down and on the third, from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him up in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And we met us at Assos, we took him on board, and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. On the next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail, or had decided to pa- uh, sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to pretend, uh, to pretend, to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Father, we thank you for your word. And, um, Lord, we want to just quiet our hearts before you. We so desire to hear from you. And in a passage like this, it's more of a narrative of, of a story of the Apostle Paul and his, the, some few events that took place, Lord. We know you can use these things to speak to us. And so we ask you, Father, to just speak into our lives that you would change and transform us, that when we leave here, that people would look upon us and they would, they would know that we've been with Jesus. That is our prayer every week, Lord. And that you would form and fashion us, that your spirit would speak. And so, Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you. We thank you for being here, for allowing us into the throne room. And we are looking forward to allowing your hands to shape and change us. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity now. Open our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Do we have any Alabama fans in the house? Good. You know, I was going to say, we, we don't have any room. Well, look, there's one, but he wasn't afraid. He was too afraid to say roll tide in this place. But that's not the kind of Alabama fan I'm talking about. I'm referring to the multi-platinum, most decorated band in the history of country music. Alabama. Come on, somebody. Hey, if you know the band, then you might remember this song. Hit it, Maestro. In a hurry to get things done, oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. Don't know why. I have to drive so fast. My car has nothing to prove. It's not you. But it'll do zero to sixty and five point two. I'm in a hurry to get things done. Oh, I rush and rush until I've no fun. 
got the idea. Alabama, come on, somebody. Hey, I used to be in a country music band. Did you know that? You probably didn't know that. I sang this song back in 1992. That's when it came out. It was one of their uh, biggest hits, charting number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot Country Singles and Tracks. But the, the important thing is what the song is about. The song is about a man who is always in a hurry, rushing from one thing to another, having, uh, taking no time to slow down and enjoy his life. He's constantly on the go and doesn't even know why he's in such a hurry. I think that that song was so successful because that is literally the American lifestyle. We are in such a hurry, and half the time we don't know why. Most of the time, it's really not about the right things either. It's about us getting from one place to the other, doing these kinds of things. Well, this, this culture of a hurried life has made its way into the church. Many Christians are living their life like this song. They're in a hurry to get things done. They rush and rush until the Christian life is no fun. They think all I really got to do is live and die. They're in a hurry and they don't know why. Are you living your life like that this morning? Do you understand the mission that God has called you to? Uh, some people would say, well, Christians should never be in a hurry. I disagree with that. I think that there are some things that we should be in an incredible hurry about. Not all things, but the right things. Not any business, but the Father's business. I think Jesus was in a hurry to get to the cross. I think Jesus was in a hurry to raise again from the dead. What, I want, what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus was a missional man in a hurry, listen to this, to do the Father's will. And we should be, as Christians, in a hurry to do the Father's will. We should be about the Father's business. There should be, in our lives, a sense of urgency on a daily basis to do the things that God calls us to do, to put our hands to the things that he's calling us to do, to say the things that we're supposed to say, and all of these sorts of things. The reason I play that song and I say these things is because we find in our text this morning a, a missional man in a hurry. Uh, the Apostle Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. We, we read it here. It says in verse 16, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, you have to understand, this is months of Paul before he says this. That he, it's going to take him months to get there, but he's in a hurry. He's in a hurry. He, he has a focus. And we'll get to the reason why here shortly of why he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But Paul felt some pressure. He felt some urgency to get to Jerusalem. But here's what's interesting about it. Although he's in a hurry, Paul doesn't miss the greater mission in his life. There's four things that I want to share with you from this text uh, about Paul as a missional man in a hurry that doesn't forsake the mission at large. The first thing that we find is that a missional man in a hurry always takes time to encourage others. Look at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. If you were with us last week, you know that the, the uproar that um, Luke is referring to is the uproar that was created by Demetrius the silversmith. Remember, a revival had broken out in Ephesus. The place was changed and transformed to such a degree that the, the trinkets that these silversmiths were making, fashioning and forming the little idols of the, the goddess Diana and the, maybe the, the, the representation of the seventh wonder of, or one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the temple there in Ephesus, people weren't buying these things. Because God was changing and transforming this culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to us to know that if we stick to the script, God can change a culture. Amazing thing. But what happened was Demetrius started looking at his ledger and says, whoa, sales are going down. Our businesses are going to fold. And so he goes to the silversmith guild and uh, all the other guilds relating to uh, the, the Temple Artemis and such. And he says, hey, we got to do something about this because if we don't, our businesses are going to fold. 
So he creates an uproar in the city, as you know, and they're charging through the city streets saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and such. And they find a couple of the, the disciples along the way and they drag them into the, the, the theater there that, in, in Ephesus. Um, and what we know is in that moment, uh, the Lord showed up to calm the crowd. And it was through a representative of Rome, the town clerk, he was a liaison between Ephesus as a free city. They had their own, you know, sort of governing body and stuff. They didn't have a Roman contingency on site, but they did have a representative from Rome, and he was the town clerk. And he steps into the chaos of that moment, and he says, whoa, 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 what's going on? And he starts to grasp the, the situation. And so he tells Demetrius and the, the, these people who are in an uproar over their business to take these things to the, city, to the um, marketplace where the court would happen. He said, if you have something against these people, then you take it to the court, but you don't do this. And so he calms everybody down, and he disperses them, and they all go home. And Luke then writes, after the uproar ceased, that's what he was referring to, Paul sent for the disciples so that he could encourage them. Do you know encouragement was a big part of the ministry of the Apostle Paul? Uh, we've been reading it through the book of Acts, chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, that Paul, when he would go to the churches, it says that he would encourage them and strengthen them. He was an encourager to the body of Christ. I think he was an encourager to the body of Christ because he understands the Christian life and how difficult it is. It's a difficult journey, and we're going to find here the Apostle Paul, even in the midst of his uh, difficulties, that he was still encouraging and strengthening the saints in the midst of his own personal afflictions and such. He was a busy man, but he always took the time to encourage people. I love that. It says a lot about the character of a person when they are, even in the midst of being busy, they take time to reach out to other people and to encourage other people. These kinds of people are an incredible blessing to the body of Christ. Those people that would be the Barnabases in our midst that would look specifically, they would be like heat-seeking missiles in the body of Christ looking to see who it is that God would have them encouraged today. Man, I, I want to have a, 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 I wish the church was full of people that were just encouragers, and we should be encouragers. You know why? Because everybody needs encouragement. They're not a single person in the world that doesn't need encouragement. You might think somebody has their life all together, and you might think like, oh, they don't need encouragement. They need encouragement. Trust me. And in fact, I've been surprised recently at some of the conversations that I've had with people that I, I know pretty well. I thought. And then they tell me some of the things that, some of the thoughts that they're having in their own lives, you know, suicidal thoughts and stuff of people that are, you would never guess in a million years that they're struggling with these kinds of things. What I'm telling you is that you see the version of a person that they want you to see, but you don't see it all. And what I'm trying to tell you is that everybody needs encouragement. And the Holy Spirit, I think, is faithful to put that on our hearts to, to help us to understand, to have that, that sense of what, you know, how we should encourage uh, one another. I think that the church at large should be the greatest encouragers in all the world. We have hope beyond the grave, folks. We should be incredible encouragers. And when we're downtrodden, you know, God will be faithful to bring people in your life to encourage you. It was the great theologian Tony Dungy, who was also the first African-American coach to win the Super Bowl, but that's besides the point. He said, everyone everywhere needs encouragement on a regular basis. Start with the people you know and then add to the list. I like that mentality. In other words, we should be looking uh, you know, as we live our lives on a daily basis, we should be looking for people to encourage. One of the things that I, that I enjoy doing when I'm out and about doing my thing, what is my thing? I don't know. But whatever it is that I'm doing, that thing, I like to look for people to encourage. Like, I, I, like, to, I, like, to, I like to pay attention to how a person's, you know, uh, how, they're, how they're, they're responding to me. In whether it's a, a clerk at a gas station or, you know, a coffee shop barista or whatever. And I always like, hey, man, how's your, how's your day going? And if I hear them, like, this sounds they're a little down, you know, I make it my goal to try and make them smile before I leave. Like, how, Lord, like, Lord, just, 
Give me some word to say, how can I encourage this person to, 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 to brighten their day a little bit? Because you don't know what people are going through. You have no idea what they're struggling with. They might be present physically, but man, they might be a million miles away in some you know, affliction in their heart and mind that they need some encouragement. So we should be faithful to do that. You know, rather than Christians, you know, leaving bad tips because their service was horrible, they should look to encourage that person. Hey, can I pray for you? It looks like you're having a hard day. And you know what we should do? And in fact, because we are trophies of the grace of God, we should, when we're in those situations, we should be like, hey, don't worry about me. I know it looks like you're having a tough day, uh, you know, so do you, you know, just don't worry about me. Don't stress out over it. We should be like that to these people. Rather, we're oftentimes the worst as Christians in general. Uh, you know, that we're the worst when it comes to being served poorly and these kinds of things. Oh, man, Lord, help me to remember the grace that I've received, that I would give it back out. But Paul was faithful to encourage the saints. And when he did that there in Ephesus, it tells us that he said farewell and departed to for Macedonia. Now, this was his plan. He told us that was, that's exactly what he was going to do in Acts 19.21. It says, that, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. I think it's important that, to note that it says that Paul resolved. Not just to stop there though, Paul resolved in what? Paul resolved in the spirit. In other words, Paul didn't resolve in and of himself to do these things. He understood that God had a plan for his life, that his agenda and itinerary belonged to God. Does your agenda and itinerary belong to God? You might be resolving to do all these things in your life, but the question is, are you resolving in the spirit? He's, the, he's our guide in this life. And he'll put us on the right path. Listen, you can resolve in your flesh to do all kinds of good things, and they can be great and all that, but... The bigger question is, are you doing what God wants you to do? Am I resolving in the spirit to do the things that the Lord wants me to do? Paul said he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. Now, what we don't know is why. The text doesn't tell us. And, uh, you know, so, so we're left to wonder, like, well, why, why is he just passing through there? Why wouldn't he actually go and stay there and disciple these guys and such. Well, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 exactly why he's doing this. 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians is written in Ephesus while Paul is there. So while he's in Ephesus here and he's encouraging these saints, the whole three years he was there, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. It tells us sometime in that, in that moment, it tells us that Paul had, you know, some resolve in his spirit to, to, do, to, to go th to pass through Macedonia and Achaia specifically to pick up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It's on your screen. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what Paul is saying is that there was, there, the church in Jerusalem is in great need. And he's saying, we, we need to take up a collection. He's already talked to the churches in Galatia about it, that they should take up an offering for the, the church at large. That's the idea. We're going to take up a love offering for the church at large because we care about the church at large. We care about people who are struggling in the church at large. They might not be part of our body, but they're part of the body, which means we should care. We should care about these people. And Paul had a heart for the church, and so it tells us that he, he instructed them before he got there to take up an offering, and I think that's interesting. What he's saying, and what he will write in 1 Corinthians as well, is that he doesn't want people to give to the Lord. Everybody should give, but they shouldn't give begrudgingly. 
You shouldn't be giving because you for, you're forced to give. And what Paul thought is if I show up there and I say, okay, let's take the offering, it's going to force people to give. And I don't want to do that. So let's just settle the matter. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart to give to this church, to these, these saints in Jerusalem, put it away. And then when I show up, we're just going to collect it. We're not going to say anything about it. We're just going to take it. And he said, if you want to send representatives from your church, um, you know, do, do so, and we will go together if, if that's, you know, what, what they would like. Then we'll go together to Jerusalem. That's his plan. Now, when Paul gets to Greece here later in our text, he'll write the book of Romans there. And in the book of Romans, he makes reference to the same thing, that this is exactly what he's doing. Romans 15, 25, and 26. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, I have, plea, have pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul cares about these hurting people in Jerusalem. They're, they're hurting financially. We know in Acts chapter 6, they made things all in common. And, the, the, you know, there were many people who had literally relocated to Jerusalem after Pentecost had come. They didn't go home. They stayed there. The church was growing. They sort of pulled all their resources together, and they started helping one another and such. And now the church is in a financial conundrum. They're in trouble. People are poor there. They can't get jobs because now they're Christians. And so all of this stuff is happening, and Paul understanding that. And in fact, Paul was part of it, really. He was part of the persecution that happened there. So, you know, he probably has takes some personal responsibility even for some of this. But he's like, man... Just take this offering to these people. And so he's in a rush to do that. He's in a rush to get to Jerusalem to, to help the, the body of Christ there in, in Jerusalem and such. But in the midst of all of that, listen, he doesn't forget the bigger mission. He doesn't forget, the, yeah, that's part of what God has called him to do in his life. Like he needs to take, he needs to take an offering to this church. But... In the midst of that, even though he's in a hurry, he doesn't stop doing the bigger mission, which is he's going to encourage the saints along the way. He's doing it in Ephesus. And then it tells us here in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. You can see on this map here that Paul started in Ephesus, and it's a horrible DPI picture of the map. But anyway, um, that's all I could find. But, but you can see it uh, uh, at Ephesus, he's going to go up through Asia. That's not a, just a real, like, quick journey. And in fact, Paul, as he's making his way through Asia, it tells us in the text, when he had gone through those regions, all the way up through Troas, he would make his way over to, through Macedonia and all the way down to the southern part of Greece, which is also called Achaia. That whole time Paul is going through all of this, he is encouraging the saints. He's not lost sight of the mission, even though he is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, he's still taking the time to encourage the saints there. Uh, what, we, what we don't know relating to the journey there of him making his way up, specifically just in Asia to Troas, that journey there, when he was making his way up there, he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. And when he's writing the book there, he tells us, it's a letter, I mean, when he's writing that, he gives us indication of some of the things that he's encountering as he's making his way up there. And it's going to blow your mind, I think. Paul, this wasn't an easy trip for the Apostle Paul. And in fact, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, about what he was experiencing in Asia on his way to Troas. It said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that, we, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers 
of many. This wasn't a simple journey to just to get to Troas. It was a difficult way. There was a lot of trial along the way. There was much affliction in the Apostle Paul's life. And yet, he's still encouraging others. He's still building the body of Christ up. And what I want you to hone in on is verse 9 of this section of Scripture because it tells us, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like maybe it's a disease, maybe it's a circumstance, whatever it is, but you're like, dude, this is like a sentence of death. And that can put you in a hopeless state. But Paul understood that what the devil meant for evil, God was using for good. He said, man, he goes, uh, you know, we, we're in this moment where, where we think that we've been delivered to death here, but what we realize is that God has given us this trial, this affliction, whatever it might have been, to make us reliant on him and not us. What a great thing to learn in the midst of your affliction, that you have a place to go, that you have somebody to rely on that is beyond this world, that has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants to do. But the fact is, oftentimes, we try and do it on our own. We think we can get through the trial. We think we can overcome the, cir the circumstance. You know, if we just would muster up a little bit more strength in and of ourselves, in our flesh, man, then we would be able to get over the hump. Are you there this morning? Are you trying to do whatever it is that you're trying to do and, and empowered by the flesh? Well, be prepared to fail. I mean, you can do a lot in the flesh. Don't get me wrong. There's people that can do incredible things in the flesh. There's, there's people that, you know, in some way, shape, or form, sort of, you know, I would say are an example of love greater than many Christians I know. But it's in the flesh. There's something attached to it that somehow brings back the glory to them. So that you can one day say, I did it. I did it. We can't rely on ourselves. And, and what will happen if you're trying to is God will show you you, you can't. He'll put you in a circumstance where he will help you re be reminded, hey, you can't do this on your own. You need me. You need me. And uh, Paul said we recognize that as we were going through this place, that the Lord was using these circumstances as a means of getting our eyes back on him to, to re be reminded that we can't do it on our own. And yet he's encouraging the saints on the way. It's amazing to me. When you get your eyes on Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're going through you will be an encouragement to others. You will be able to um, speak life into people's um, hearts when even in the midst of your own circumstances, you know, God gives us the ability to do these kinds of things. And sometimes we can be an incredible encouragement in the midst of our suffering, the way that we suffer. You suffer well, it encourages other people to suffer well. I think of, you know, I was, I was thinking about Polycarp, for whatever reason, came to my mind when I was, came across this text. And he, he was second century pastor of the church of, of Smyrna, I think, and he, um, you know, he was crucified. He was, he, was, he, was, he was martyred for his faith. He was tied to a stake, and they were going to burn him alive, but the flames wouldn't touch his skin. So they stabbed him, and the, and the blood spilled out and put the flames out. <laughs> 86 years old, and he stood his ground for Christ. And how many people were encouraged in the midst of that? It's, you know, they say that it's the, it's the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church, but it's also the blood of the martyrs that encourages the church to stand our ground, to, to be willing to give it up for Christ, because it's not about this life, it's about the next one. And so, as strange as it might seem, even in the midst of our suffering, we can be an encouragement to the body of Christ. Paul will go on to say that when he gets to Troas, even though, well, let me just read it for you, 2 Corinthians 2, he says, verses 12 and 13, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul ends up connecting with Titus in Macedonia. He crosses over the Aegean Sea. And he uh, finds himself there. Was it in Neapolis or Philippi or Thessalonica? We don't know. But what it tells us is that when he got there, 
in Macedonia, he connected with Titus, even in the midst of his suffering, and it just encouraged him to see this brother. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 7. For even when we came, to, came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the, by the comfort with which he has comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. Uh, God even sent encouragement to the Apostle Paul so that he could continue to be encouragement to other people. I hope what you're seeing in the midst of all of this is Paul understood the mission. The Christian mission is people. It's people, if your mentality is, man, I would be doing great in life if there just weren't any people. There just weren't any people here. I would be doing fantastic. It's people that I have a problem with. I don't. I, I think you're missing the point. The point is people. It's not about a checklist of tasks. That's kind of a law keeping mentality. I'll just do these things for the Lord, and then He'll be good. No, He's about people. God is in the people business, and His people are in the people business. And so, you know, our heart should be, man, help me to love people more, God. And, uh, you know, what I know is that the enemy will put those really difficult people to love in your life so that you don't want to be around people. Man, it's just that one person. If that one person just weren't, that, it's that one person that made me not like everybody else. No, I think it's a heart issue. We're, we're in the people business. And honestly, most of the time, those people are the closest to coming to Christ, the ones that are the most rough, most difficult to love. But, but Paul, you know, even in the midst of all of his difficulty, man, he, uh, he still encouraged people. Now, you would not get any of this out of this text unless you knew that 1 Corinthians was written in Ephesus Ephesus while he was there, and then along his journey to Troas that he was writing 2 Corinthians. You wouldn't know any of this. You wouldn't know that when Paul gets to Corinth here in just a minute and he spends three months there that, um, that he writes the book of Romans. Why is that important? Because it fills in the blanks. Like we can just read something like Paul encouraged the church and we can just think like, well, of course he encouraged the church. What's he going through? He's just traveling, you know. He's just having a good old time. Isn't that what missionary work is all about? Just going to have a vacation in another country. No, he was, he was tr- being tried at every moment. And yet he stood his ground and he stayed on task. And that, is, that should encourage you this morning because you might sit here and read some of these things and think like, yeah, well, you know, people don't understand what I'm going through. Oh, no, he knows. He knows well what you're going through. He's going through, you know, I mean, he's gone through a lot. You read, we don't even know the half of it. It's just some of the things that we know about. You know, the, the fact that Jesus said, I, I can relate to you at every aspect. He knows. He knows what you're going through. And he knows what you need to hear. But, you know, even in the midst of all of those things, our circumstances don't give us an out to the mission that he's called us to. Our circumstances are no out for us. Like we need to still stay on task. Even in the midst of our suffering, the difficulties, whatever it is, that we need to stay on task. So understanding this stuff can fill in the blanks. And and it can encourage you even all the more to know what he's going through. It tells us that when he arrived in Greece, that is the southern part of Macedonia, known as a region called Achaia, he spent three months there, again, probably in Corinth, Corinth there, and when he got there in Corinth, he ruffled the feathers of the Jews. Imagine that. Imagine the Apostle Paul ruffling the feathers of the Jews. How did he do it this time? Right? He probably didn't do anything but show up because remember, in his second missionary journey, when he came through Corinth, two of the leaders in the synagogue, Sosthenes and Crispus, came to Christ. So they were frustrated with him all all together. They went to the city ruler there at the time, and they're shaking their fist at Paul. They took him to the marketplace to try and get him condemned, to try and make it, you know, hey, Christianity and, and Judaism are separated, but God gave them favor in that moment. So the Jews are frustrated, 
And then the Apostle Paul shows back up. What are they going to do? They plan some sort of an attack on him when he's going to get on the boat to go back over to Troas. But it tells us here that somehow Paul became aware of the situation. Was it the Holy Spirit has told him or was it somebody else that told him? I don't know. But what we know is that he became aware of the plan and so he didn't get on the boat. What were they going to, well, maybe they were going to steal the money that was, you know, what? I don't know. But they wanted to, they wanted to uh, come against him. But he decided to divert and go through Macedonia and then he would sail from Philippi back over to Troas. But he's going to bring some companions with him. He's not by himself. Look at verse 4. Sopater, the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So they split. Some of these guys jumped on the ship there in, in Corinth and went over to Troas. The others went up with Paul. Paul probably, Luke included, up uh, through Philippi and then would sail over. But what about these men? What's the big deal about them? Why are they there? They're, they're, they're representatives of the churches that have taken collections for the church in Jerusalem. And they're going to go with him there. To, to Jerusalem, and they're going to hand over the offering that was taken at their churches. Hey, what an encouragement to the church in Jerusalem to know that the church at large it cares about them enough to send representatives to bring an offering to them that they would be blessed, that God would bless them in that way. Paul maybe did it for accountability purposes too, just like, hey, I want to make sure that you guys know that it actually goes directly there to these people. Um, but what's interesting about every one of these people that are mentioned here is that they all come from churches that the Apostle Paul has planted. Every one of these people. They're from a church that he laid the foundation or they're, you know, it, during his missionary journeys, they're representations of the places that God had used him. What a great just confirmation of the hand of God on your life when you look around and just see what, what is the Lord doing in your life and you start to think about how God has used you to, to do things for, on his behalf. And it's like, oh, man, how can you use me, Lord? He can use you. All you got to do be, is be available, and he can use you incredibly. And, he, 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 you know, and then he gets all the glory for it because it's his work. He's doing it. But what an encouragement to the Apostle Paul to know, wow, Lord, look what you're doing. You're building these churches. So they send representation. And it tells us here that Paul went up to Philippi and, and he would cross over um, to Troas. It took them five days to get to Troas. Then they stayed there for seven days. So they, they arrived there probably on a Sunday and they were going to leave the following Monday morning or something like that. that that's the idea. Um, look what, what happens when he gets there. It says on verse 7, on the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So, uh, you know, a missional man in a hurry not only takes time to encourage others, but he also takes the time to share the word. He comes to Troas. He's there for seven days. It falls on a day, his last day there is a Sunday. It's the first day of the week, right? That's Sunday. And, um, and the church met on Sundays. We know this throughout the book of Acts. It's made mention of that. It was the first day of the week. They didn't meet on the Sabbath. They didn't meet from, you know, sundown Friday to, to sundown Saturday. That's not when the church met. The church met on Sunday. And why was that? Well, some people believe it's because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. You know, uh, what we know is that they weren't bound by the law to meet on the Sabbath day, and they understood that, and that was well uh, understood in the early church, and yet we're struggling with that in our culture even today. Like, oh man, we just need to meet on the Sabbath. Well, this, every day is the Sabbath in Jesus. But here's what I'll tell you about those of us who understand our relationship to the law. 
you know, that we're not under the law. It's a tutor to bring us to Christ. That it's, it's Christ, you know, that the, the law has a place. But it's more about pointing us about to, to where we fail rather than, you know, it's a bar for sure. But we're not under that because we can't, we will never meet that standard, you know. Um, but it isn't to say that people shouldn't do these things if they're convicted. Not in a legalistic manner, but as a believer in Jesus, that you have freedom to worship the Lord however you desire. And in fact, Paul says this. And I think that's the other side of this that maybe the people who understand grace, you know, can become judgmental of those who would fall in line with saying, hey, I just want to worship on the Sabbath or I want to, you know, celebrate a festival. I, I can fall into that myself and just become more, you know, like, well, what are you doing? You're... But, but listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What he's saying is, is man, there's enough grace in the church for people to, to, to worship the Lord the way he, they want to, the way they desire to. It's okay to do these things, but not legalistically. In other words, if you think that by doing some of these things that you're going to get more favor with God, you're wrong. You already have all the favor you're going to get from God, and that's all his favor. You already have it. You're not getting it because it's something that you've done. You're getting it because of something that Jesus has done. You have the favor of God through the cross. You have the favor of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's not why people are doing that, but some people have a conviction in their heart that they should do these things, and I would tell you that that's fine as long as they keep it in that perspective. That it's not about favor. It's not about, you know, those things. It's about this is the way that I choose to worship the Lord. It's okay. It seems to me that there's freedom in Christ to do these kinds of things. As long as you have it in the right context. The church gathered on Sunday, which was the first day of the week. What did their service look like? Oh, oh let me tell you. Sunday, by the way, as they met together, did you know it wasn't Sunday morning? Monday, or Sunday was the first day of the week in the culture, meaning that they, that was a work day for these people. They went to work, and then they came and worshiped the Lord. And in fact, that's why they're meeting here in Troas in the evening. It kind of shows us that, that the early church met probably on Sunday evenings after a day's work. And, and you know, so you would go to work, you would come together, and what would the service look like? They would break bread together. That would include a common meal or the agape feast, which is referenced by Jude chapter, or Jude verse 12. And then they would also, it would include the partaking of communion, which would happen later in the service in, um, as indicated by 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So they would come together, they would eat a meal, they would sing some psalms or something like that. They would have some spiritual songs that they would sing and then they would have a speaker that would speak, and then they would partake of communion. That's kind of the way it went down. That kind of sounds like what we do, in a way. Very similar. You know, sometimes, sometimes people think like, man, if we could just get back to the early church. <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, we're kind of like it. I don't know. I mean, what else could we do? You know, if we could just get back to the early church. Where they had a structure. They did have a structure. But, but I'll keep you till midnight if you want. I mean, I will. We can do that, totally. But here's what's interesting is the Apostle Paul is in Troas. People know he's there, and, and then he's going to be at church that night, the first day of the week. They're thinking, oh, man, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the speaker tonight, he's going to be teaching tonight. He's going to give the word. And so I, can't, I have to imagine, the text doesn't tell us this, but i got to imagine there's probably a lot of people there. They're going to meet in an upper room. There's probably a lot of people there. It's probably a packed place. And it tells us that he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, he had a lot to say, but he had a short time to say it. What we know from the rest of the chapter is that Paul has some understanding of there's something facing him in Jerusalem. And he's been, this has been a nagging thing in his heart, like, when I get to Jerusalem, something's going to go down. And we know the prophet Agabus will come and bind him and tell him this is what you can expect and all these kinds of things. But 
in this culture in this day, when you left somewhere, it, it could be very possibly the very last time you're going to see somebody. Right? You may never see these people again. And what I find interesting is that although Paul knows that he's going to depart the next day, he prolongs his speech. Like he says, man, I'm going to take whatever time I have to to say whatever it is I feel like the Lord's putting on my heart to say, and I don't care if that means all night. And that's exactly what happened. He stayed up until dawn, the day broke, and then he departed. He gets zero sleep in the midst of this. No one would blame the guy for taking, for, you know, he, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. No one would blame him to go, man, it's 8 o'clock. We're going to wrap things up. Thanks for coming. God bless you guys. We'll, we won't see you next week, but maybe we'll see you in heaven or something. Who knows? No one would blame the guy for saying, I got to get a little shut-eye before I take off tomorrow. And yet that's not what he does. He has an opportunity to share the word of God. And he takes the opportunity even in the midst of his own physical limitations, even. I'm sure he was exhausted. I mean, you can't travel like this and not be exhausted. And yet he takes the time to share the word of God. You know, during the holidays, you have the opportunity to be with your families and, you know, people that you don't get to see all the time and whatever. It's, it's a time where family gather and stuff like that. And you know how it is that you'll just stay up talking, you're just getting caught up, and you're like, man, and you're exhausted by the end of, you're like, oh, man, can't wait for these people to leave, I'm so tired. <laughs> but, but here's what I'll tell you is that you have an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity. Maybe to fellowship with other believers in your family, but maybe it's to share the gospel with other ones that don't know the, know the Lord. But be willing to share the word and be willing to do it sacrificially. Like, you might have to stay up all night long. You might have to go rounds with the gospel with people so that they can get a grasp of it. Are you willing to share the word of God with people in a sacrificial manner? Paul would, is going to do whatever he has to do to make sure the word goes forward. And he's going to prolong his speech until midnight if that's what it takes. You know why? Because he wants to hear his own voice. Is that why he's doing it? think he's doing it because he loves people and he understands his mission is about his people and the people that he cares about the people that he loves man he wants to pour into their life and that's what he's doing but notice it tells us that there are many lamps in the room now I have this idea that there are a bunch of people in this room number one you know when you get in a bunch of people in a small room what happens it starts to get hot doesn't it because of the body heat of just people not only on top of that you have many lamps. The idea is that the room is filled with lamps. Now, <laughs> they didn't have ventilation laws back in this day, right? So you got these lamps burning. Number one, they're generating heat. But not only that, but also the fumes from the lamps. You know, it's probably toxic as all get out, man. You, got, you think you have mold sensitivities. You should have been in this room with the, the fumes coming off these lamps, dude. It was bad. <laughs> they ate a meal... And then they, the room is hot. This is a recipe for disaster as the Apostle Paul prolongs his, his talk here until midnight. Look what happens, verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him up in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone down and broken bread and eaten. Paul had gone up, I'm sorry, and broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This particular man, his name was Eutychus. He was, you know what that means? You know what his name means? Fortunate. How fortunate of him. How fortunate of Eutychus to fall out the window from a third story and to lie on the ground dead. How fortunate of that. But how fortunate of him to be raised again from the dead. How amazing that is. Fortunate. He's fortunate that the Lord was there in that moment and that the Apostle Paul was there and the Lord chose to do that in that moment. Doesn't happen all the time, but we're still fortunate in Christ, aren't we? Regardless. 
But, but he, the, the word young here, it means, it suggests that his age is somewhere between 8 to 14. So he's, he's a young man. He's a young man. In this culture, young men would go to work with their father. They would learn their father's trade. So he was at work with his dad probably all day. And then he comes and he's like, oh, I want to go to church. You know, we're going to go to church. That's what we do. You know, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. He goes to church. He's there. He wants to be there. And it tells us that, you know, he just starts to get a little, it gets a little stuffy in the room. So he's like, oh, man, I need to get over by that window. Be a little bit cooler over there. So he makes his way over there and he sits in the ledge of the window. He's like, oh, it's a little better here. And then. Then he starts, his eyes start to get heavy, and he starts doing the nod thing, you know. Pretty soon he can't overcome that, and, and he, he, he falls asleep. He's trying to fight it. Hey, listen, I see it all the time. I see it all the time. And then all of a sudden they, they wake up like, and then they're like, they, they're like, yeah, you know, like trying to play it off like, Listen, it's just me and you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm amused by it. Uh, you don't have to play it off. I know what's happening. Don't worry. I don't take personal offense to that. But he drifted off and he fell asleep. Yet when people fall asleep in church, they will come out and find me after the service and go, oh, Pastor, I'm sorry that I fell asleep in church. And I go, dude, it doesn't offend me. I, I don't take that personally. Like, you know, it can be because of the preaching. And it might be, but I understand. You, you know, at least you're here. At least you're here. The, the thing that you need to fear more is the elbow from your spouse. That, that's probably more, don't, don't worry about what I think. You probably need to worry about that one. But seriously, like, you know what's worse than falling asleep in church? It's falling asleep spiritually and being in church. Just going through the motions, reading your Bible, even saying words to people, gathering together on a regular basis, and doing all the things that Christians have to do with no heart connection at all, to fall asleep spiritually. That's the greatest danger that you and I as Christians can face, is that we just put it in neutral. And we just start, we'll drift so far away from the Lord, and you won't even know it. You ever read that book, Pilgrim's Progress? You know, part of the book there, we're Christian. He's the representation of you and I. And he goes through all these different trials and difficulties that, like, you and I go through. And it kind of shows how he's on his way to the celestial kingdom, or celestial whatever it is, kingdom or whatever it is. And he comes through this field, and it's... If I'm recalling this right, there's this like this field of flowers. It's like, oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, smell it. It smells so good. But he starts to get tired and drowsy. So he lays down in the field and he falls asleep. And it's a picture of you and I in the Christian life when we fall asleep spiritually. And we're just going through the motions. We're just doing these things, but there's no heart connection. We're not doing them for the Lord. We're just doing them. Because that's what we do. And I want to encourage you this morning to examine your heart. You might be on the brink of sitting in the ledge of a window three stories up and you're asleep. Now, the Lord wants to shake you a little bit so you don't fall out of the window. Like this man, Eutychus. He fell out of the window from the third story and it tells us that he was what? Dead. He was dead. Now, who's writing the book of Acts again? Luke. And what's Luke's profession? He's a doctor. Do you think he's dead? I don't know why people try and, you know, well, we're not sure if he was dead or not. He was dead. It says he's dead. You don't think that Luke, you know, I mean, he's a doctor. You don't think he went down there and was like, uh, there's no pulse here. He's dead. Uh, he's writing this. Uh, he could have said we supposed he was dead. But that's not what he says. He was dead. He was taken up dead. That can be a hopeless situation in that moment. Yet it tells us that the Lord, you know, just in Paul, 
The Spirit of God tells us he goes down there. He bends over this boy. And last time I checked, when somebody falls out of a third-story building, you probably shouldn't move them. But he grabs him. He pulls him up. You know, his neck's going all over the place like that. (laughs) They didn't have the same rules we do. But you know what? God was doing something. And he takes him up in his arms, and he says, oh, don't worry. His life is in him. When do you think his life came in him? At what point did his life come in him? I wonder. Was it when Paul spoke the words, his life is in him and the Holy Spirit met him? What I know is that God gave Paul faith, and it was the will of God in the moment for this miracle to occur. And it did. And this kid was raised to life. Eutychus was given the gift of life through the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. A missional man in a hurry will take the time to raise the dead to life. That doesn't just mean physically. But do you know that every person in the world that is outside of Christ, that they're dead? You were dead once. I was dead once. And when, I, when you and I, when we believed on Christ and God f- sealed us with the Holy Spirit, life came in us. That's when we started to live. But we were dead before. Remember the promise in the garden? If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. It wasn't a question of you might. You shall surely die. And the moment that they ate of that tree, they surely died. Spiritually, they were dead. Now, physically, it took time. They lived for hundreds of years. But you know what? Everybody born from that moment on is dead spiritually. And we need to be made alive through Christ. And it is Christ who does it. And by the way, that is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. Does God have people in your life that are dead? That he's calling you to raise to life? How am I supposed to do that? By faith? And believing, you know, in the gospel of Jesus Christ to deliver the message faithfully? You don't even have to make the words up. It's scripted. Like you can just tell people, uh, you know, you need Jesus. You're a sinner. You can just go through the Romans road of salvation. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, Romans 8.1. You can tell people that there is hope in Christ, that they can go from death to life. And you have a script to do it. And God's calling you to do it. And if we're in such a hurry in our lives, we'll miss the opportunities. And so we need to be in a hurry to do the will of God. And sometimes that means raising the dead to life. And you have the capacity to do that in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul went back upstairs and and he ate some food. That's what hungry, he must have been hungry. Raising people from the dead makes a guy hungry. So he goes upstairs and he eats some food. He takes communion with the, the body there probably. And then it says he talks to them some more until morning. He stayed up all night long just talking about the Lord with these people. Pouring, pouring himself out as a drink offering. I have in my notes, what a stud. What a stud to, to just give himself over to, that, to the Lord in that way. Man, he cares so much about people. This is what love looks like. Love, love makes these kinds of sacrifices. And it tells us here that the whole body was comforted because this boy was taken away alive. It was an encouragement that the Lord had given this church. Not only did they get the word delivered, but they got to witness a miracle. The dead came to life. Well, this brings us to our final point here. A missional man in a hurry will take the time to plan his steps accordingly. Look at verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we sailed for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came from the following, came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, 
And the day after, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that um, he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul stays up all night long. And when he's going to travel, he could take a boat from Troas down to Assos. But it tells us that Paul chooses to go by land. It's a 20-mile walk. 20-mile walk from Troas to Assos. Why do you suppose that he's walking? Why do you say, oh, you know, I need a little exercise. Let me get my steps in 20 miles. That's got to be about 40,000 steps or something like that. So, you know, I need to get those in before we jump on the boat. I think he did it because he wasn't done talking. He wasn't done ministering. And he said, why don't you guys come with me? I got to get to Assos, but I'm going to walk so that you guys can come with me, and we're going to talk the whole way, a day's journey away. 20 miles is typically a day's journey. And he just continues to pour in to these people. And he gets there. He jumps on board with the rest of the people that are with him now. And it tells us that they stopped at a series of um, little islands along the way. And you can see this map here where they went to Assos. From Assos, they went to Mytilene. And then they went to Chios. And then they went to Samos. And they arrived in Miletus. And it tells us here that Paul, he intentionally didn't go through Ephesus. He intentionally did that. He planned his steps accordingly. In other words... Yeah, he, he, he resolved in the spirit initially to go through Macedonia and Achaia, but now he intentionally bypasses Ephesus. Why? Because he knew he'd get hung up in Ephesus, and he's in a, now time is short. He doesn't have the time to stop. And there is a time that the Lord will say, no, you've got to pass by that place. You don't have time to stop there because I have you going somewhere else. And if we're, if we're not in tune to the spirit of God, we'll miss the instructions. What Paul doesn't do is pass by them and, and just, you know, like they don't exist. No, what he does do, and we'll see this next week, is that he has the first pastors and leaders conference in Asia. The very first one that ever happened. He calls the elders from Ephesus over to Miletus, and he's going to just pour into them for just a short period of time. But he can't go to Ephesus or he'll get hung up and he'll miss what he believes God is telling him to do, and that is to get to Jerusalem uh, by the day of Pentecost. And so he planned his steps accordingly. He's in tune to the Spirit of God. He's not a perfect man. You're not a perfect Christian either. But you know what? God is a God who speaks. And God is a God who instructs. And those who desire to know and those who desire to follow his plan, he will make it real simple. He'll tell you what to do. Even the good works that you're called to do uh, you don't even have to figure them out. It says he planned them for you. You just have to be in tune with him. And if you'll stay in tune with God, you know, through just devotion to him, obedience to his word, and, and do the things that, you know, you're, you're called to do with a sensitive heart, the Lord will direct your steps. Paul knew he didn't have time for Ephesus. That didn't mean he didn't care about them. That mean, didn't mean he didn't love them, but he didn't have time to go there. And the Lord was the one directing his steps relating to that. So I'm telling you that there are times that you're just going to need to pass by some places. And maybe that's some family members in your life or some friends in your life. But the Lord's saying, just pass by. You need to go here because I have something for you to do there. Remember, Paul couldn't go to Asia Minor initially when he was coming through on his second missionary journey. It says the Holy Spirit forbid him to go into Asia Minor where Ephesus was and such. But the Lord would bring him around to that place. And so, man, we're just, if you really think about it, we're just messengers, you know. And if we'll just, we'll just stick to the route that God has for us, we'll be incredibly used by the Lord. But we have to be sensitive to him and to what he wants to do. Are you a missional person in a hurry to do the will of God? Is there an urgency in your steps relating to the things of the Holy Spirit? Have you lost your way this morning? Remember that, that there's always, we should always take the time to encourage people. We should always take the time to share the word of God. We should always take the time to raise the dead to life. 
And we should plan our trip accordingly because that's what missional people in a hurry do. We walk according to the will of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, as we close now, that you would just speak to our hearts, Lord. We've heard a lot this, this morning, and we desire to just sit and let your spirit speak to us. So in these last few moments, Lord, I pray that you would just instruct by your spirit what our responsibility is to what we've heard this morning. How do you want us to apply your word today, Lord? Have we forgotten our mission is people and that every person needs encouragement? Give us words, Lord, to encourage those around us. Have we shirked our responsibility to share the word of God? Lord, restore passion in our hearts to speak your word. God, have we lost sight of those who are dead spiritually in this world? Will you give us a new passion for lost people, for those who are dead that we might be used by you to deliver the message of the gospel, to raise the dead to life. And finally, Lord, we want to be people who plan our steps according to your will, to your spirit. So speak to us in these last few moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand up with us? As we close today, I just want to encourage you. If you don't know the Lord, come forward. There'll be some people down here to pray with you. If you'd like prayer, something going on in your life or whatever, you're welcome to come forward. But just allow the Lord to move in these last couple minutes here. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.